0: Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther, a podcast coming to you straight from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the wonderful city of Detroit. I am your host, Dan Galodner, and with me across the table in 2023 is the version of Troy Eller-English. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Troy?
1: I'm doing great, Dan. What's How shaking? are you? shaking? I'm doing great.
0: How was your break?
1: Not long enough.
0: N- never is, is it? No. Oh, absolutely not.
1: So. I, mm, too much family. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Nothing's wrong with family.
1: I mean, in future years, I will be glad that I spent so much time with them.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm glad they listened to this podcast so they can see and hear how you feel about the family. Yes. (laughs) All all 50 people listening to this podcast will now be contacting Troy's family (laughs) and saying, what have you done to Troy? Anyway, this podcast I'm excited about. Well, I'm excited about all the books I read. I'm excited about all our podcasts. But this book... A Brick in a Bible, Black Women's Radical Activism in the Midwest During the Great Depression, is one of those original types of research that gets you really excited because you know this will contribute to so many levels, from race to feminism to labor history to Midwest history. Dr. Melissa Ford, who is an associate professor at Slippery Rock University specializing in African American history and is a former Black Metropolis Research Consortium Fellow, has written a case study book looking at Detroit... Chicago, St. Louis, and Cleveland following the lives of various African American women activists as they either participated in the Ford Hunger March, organized the Funston Nutpicker Strike, led the Soapkin Dressmakers Strike, or supported the Unemployment Councils. It is one of those books that lend to the reader that the idea that everyone and anyone can do it, and when I say it, I mean organize, stand up, be heard, and make a difference. <laughs> Okay, Dr. Ford, thank you so much for being on Tales of the Ruther. We really do appreciate you uh, stopping by and saying hello and talking about your book, A A Brick and a Bible. So happy to have you here.
2: Thank you so much. I'm uh, very excited to to talk more about it and, yeah, and the library.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah well, yeah, the, the library always loves talking to the people who use our collections constantly. Um, this book is a long time coming. Congratulations, again, getting it out. I know this is, was a dissertation project as well. Um, You're from the Midwest, you're a St. Louis native, right?
2: Yes. And
0: so I imagine this is one of the reasons you wanted to start writing about it. But what kind of things did you discover about your native city as well as the Midwest through your research when you started on this project?
2: Yeah, and, and that's a great question that I get a lot. And the first part is the why the Midwest. And a part of it is like, well, why not? I'm a little insulted, right? Why not the Midwest? Why not St. Louis? Why not Cleveland? And so forth. But the other part is that um, you have to understand <clears throat> why and how that narrative of the Midwest has been constructed. Uh, this It's white, it's conservative, it's, you know, prairie, it's the frontier. It was uh, all these kind of things associated with um in not a radical space. And so, for someone growing up in St. Louis, for a white girl in in public schools and then private schools, and I do want to foreground that as a white woman, I'm coming from a very different perspective. Um, But because of that, my education on the history of St. Louis, you know, begins with Lewis and Clark and ends with the 1904 World's Fair. And that's, I thought, all I needed to know. Um, However, of course, when I started my graduate studies at St. Louis University, there were uh, classes on local uh, history and I kind of just had my mind blown, just realizing that there are so many harder histories in between those and beyond those. I mean, in the 18th century or 19th eighteenth and 19th century alone, we have slavery, we have labor exploitation, we have disease, we have murder, we have land theft of Native Americans. Then come to the 1900s, you have segregation, you have urban renewal, you have uh, worker strikes, you have all these really hard and uncomfortable histories to, to study and to teach. And so therefore, I don't like, blame my teachers in St. Louis for not teaching some very difficult topics, but I think there's not enough training for our teachers uh, to, to talk about these things. And it's, I mean, I'm not here to give my advice on what high school teachers need to teach but mm-hmm. I think it's important to uh to be a part of elevating those stories that for so long have been deemed not important enough for for textbooks and so yeah I came to St. Louis history because I thought I knew it it turns out I did it
0: <laughs> perfect answer right there it's like that's what we always do is like when I discovered I was living in Richmond Virginia for a long time and it's like hold it there's a workers class that happened here there's uprisings no not in the south you know <laughs> hey
2: things happened here why didn't anyone tell me
0: so, exactly yeah. anyway i digress on that yeah I guess. um started out in your introduction you mentioned cedric robinson who i admire totally and i see his influence through your writing throughout the book as well as other great historians but as you as an historian um with your idea of the black radicalism how did that evolve, and how did you move Robinson's theories forward with your writing, with 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 your um, thesis?
2: That's a great question because I struggled it for with it for so long. Because Cedric Robinson's Black smart, Black Marxism is foundational text, right? You can't get anything bigger than that when you're talking the Black radical tradition. And so as a grad student, I kind of struggled when and where I enter. And that was the same thing with with my book. I'm trying to figure out how do I take on this this monument of, uh, of Black radical thought and history. And I, I was trying to get there and trying to get there until I saw Robin D.G. Kelly in conference, giving a, a keynote address. And, and Kelly is, another foundational historian of uh, Black radicalism, um, Black African-Americans in the Communist Party, especially in the South. And he was talking and he said, just as Robinson went beyond Marx, we must go beyond Robinson. And here he's talking specifically about about gender, sexuality, nation, uh, these uh, lenses, uh, interdisciplinary lenses that weren't, Available uh, to Robinson, if you want to put it that way, Mm -hmm. Um, or weren't as popular or weren't things he was thinking about. And so now with, you know, 2022 perspective, uh, we can start to use those lenses we have developed and uh, have deemed important enough and not only important, but vital to understanding uh, the black radical tradition we can use those resources that, that Robinson didn't have. And so f- for me, going beyond Robinson meant looking specifically at black women at the center of the black radical tradition. And not only that, but in the Midwest, um, which I don't know if Robinson would say is a, is a, a necessary lens, but uh, I think it's one at least that needs to be highlighted.
0: Right, right. And as some people always say, it's like, you know, it's the flyover area. So it needs to be focused in on because it was like backbone of America at that time still is, I think, and needs to be analyzed, you know. So set the stage for your book for us. Um, Covers the period of the Great Depression. Um, uh, What was it like for the Black Americans at this point of the Great Depression? But specifically, since you were focusing on Black, the role of Black women, what was the role of Black women during the Great Depression?
2: Uh, and the thing is, with historians, we always want to go back a little bit more to give the historical context of the historical context you're asking for. So I, I am going to play that role We go back to the Great Migration, right? After World War I, we see uh, in the course of 15 years, uh, millions of African-Americans moving from the South to northern industrial cities, seeking many reasons, uh, jobs, uh, economic prosperity, family members, uh, religious ties, uh, seeking Ideally, uh, separation from segregation, uh, their livelihood. So, okay, so tons of reasons they're leaving Mm -hmm. Americans in the South. And those moments when they are leaving, when we see hundreds of thousands of uh, African Americans in cities like Detroit uh, in just the course of a few years, um, represent moments of huge racial tension. Uh, because we have established middle uh, to upper class whites, as well as an established working class that has, you know, fought for their jobs, especially if we're looking in Detroit, fought very hardly for their jobs. Same thing is happening in Detroit. I mean, sorry, Chicago, St. Louis, Cleveland, and other urban areas in the Midwest. Um, and so we're seeing these huge moments of tension as we kind of uh, hit the the tail end of the Great Migration, which most scholars is are it's, it's a little fuzzy. But in the 1930s, we we transition into the period of the Great Depression rather than great migration. And so the Great Depression then, uh, and on the eve of this, we see huge racial tension. And then to add the uh, economic tension of uh, of the Great Depression, we have these huge moments of, of unrest with workers, uh, black and white, with politicians, with uh, just vying for spaces in terms of neighborhoods uh, alone, in terms of segregation, not by law, but by practice, right? A uh, fact of segregation that isn't always a far cry from what these Black Southerners escaped. And so, going back to Cedric Robinson, he says that Black radicalism is born out of moments of tension. And this tension has built to such an extent that this is where we see this very particular moment of many forces aligning uh, to explode in this unprecedented moment of Black radicalism. And you ask about the the role women played. The, the role of Black women in, in their families and communities uh, is centuries long in the United States, and of course, eons long in terms of world history. And that role continued uh, as family members or, or leaders of the family, community leaders, and as women are making that trip, uh, making that transition to these Northern urban cities or Midwestern urban cities, they're continuing that role. They are liaisons to the community. Uh, They are uh, part of this leadership of church. They are keeping families together. They uh, are the ones taking in people who don't have family members who don't have those family connections. They are creating these kinship networks that have existed since times of slavery. And so even if we're not talking Black radicalism, we're talking about the central roles that, that African-American women have or played, have played, and continue to play in, in the Black community. It just takes on a different – it takes on different flavor, if you will, uh, when we perfect. bring in yeah. Rad- radicalism.
0: Yeah, perfect, because it is a dawn of a new, unprecedented, as you said, era within American society and the the backbone of any kind of community, especially the black community is the black woman rising up to the occasion to ensure that the family exists, the community exists, the church exists, so forth and so on. So, but let's, let's, let's go into your native city. How about that? Let's let's talk about, yeah. Because you do cover St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, which all amazing stories, but I want to hear about St. Louis because, you you know, I don't know much about St. Louis. So now Um, You mentioned that now St. Louis is often overlooked in racial radical history, but you give and you point out that there's a lot to uncover. The onion peels back. Um, Why has it been overlooked and what kind of story can you share with our listeners to exemplify? Wow, we should pay attention more to this city.
2: Yeah, and I... So if you asked me this three years ago, I'd have a different answer. But as I was fin- putting the finishing touches on my book in, in 2020, Walter Johnson comes out with the definitive book on St. Louis and racial history. So overlooked is not the word I would use anymore. <laughs> uh, it's a broken heart of America, and it's it's fabulous, talking about all the racial histories and uh, this St. Louis as the gateway to the West, and uh, it's racial version of racial capitalism, and, and I highly encourage it. Um, when and where I enter, and of course, we didn't write the same book. I wish I wrote his book, but uh, where I enter then specifically with the role of, of Black women and Black radicalism in St. Louis is in 1933. And this is what initially interest me interested me in this project. Kiana Irving uh, out of uh, Missouri, University of Missouri, uh, Columbia, was uh, writing a book on the Funston nutpicker strike, and this was a part of seeing those history where I thought, oh, I know everything, right? It's there's there's people they did things in the nineteen thirties, whatever. Um, but once I read more of uh, Irving's work. Um, I was struck by how unique this moment was. Uh, It is over a thousand African-American women working in nut picking factories in St. Louis. And they're literally sitting there for hours and hours and hours a day picking pecan nuts out of the shells. And this seems like a weird job, but it was essential to the St. Louis economy. There are dozens of factories around St. Louis. And this one factory owner in particular, uh, Funston, was particularly abusive. And so this is not an uncommon story. 1930s, wages are plummeting, abuse and exploitation of workers is increasing. It's unemployment is on the rise everywhere. And so those who could have jobs clung very, tenaciously to them right they were uh very keen on keeping those jobs and so when the communists in the uh in st louis say hey a thousand women who work at these factories were willing to help you organize and lead a strike against this this um uh, almost slave labor in the factories you would think they turned their their Turn their head. They'd say, no thanks, we need our jobs. But instead, in this incredible moment of uh, insight, courage, uh, tenacity, just uh, brilliance and admiration, they say, okay, we will align with the communists and we will fight. Um, and so these two women in particular, Cora Lewis and um, Carrie Smith, uh, two black women whom you would not have expected to to lead this. I mean, Carrie Smith is kind of the heart of the movement, is what is what they uh, would call her. Is middle aged, she has children, she's a immigrant or she's a migrant from from Mississippi. She goes to church every day or every week, and here she is aligning with the communists and leading. Her, her fellow workers out on the street picketing every day. She is standing in front of uh, St. Louis City Hall saying, Hey girls, we have to fight. Workers, we have to come together. She has, she has. The story goes, she has a brick in one hand, she has a Bible in the other hand, and she says, "Girls, we stick together. We cannot lose." Mm-hmm. And so, with that imagery alone, I was like, "Yes, it's her moment that needs to be elevated. This is just as important at Lewis and Clark, right? This is just as important as the, the World's Fair." Uh, and so, those are the types of stories that I latched onto in St. Louis and went beyond before and beyond the, the strike trying to set that context, because it is, if you look at it out of nowhere, 1933 strike of 1,000 black women with allyship of the communists doesn't make sense. But if we set the stage of the great migration, the presence of Garveyites, uh, this presence of uh, unemployment and how black workers are the last hired, first fired. Uh, if we set the stage of how labor exploitation has increased and uh, riots in city hall two years earlier, it only makes sense that we reach this point of, of radical black unrest. And it only makes sense that it gives this moment gives birth to women like Carrie Smith and Cora Lewis, who are willing to to risk everything uh, for themselves, their family and their community.
0: You bring up Gar- um Garvey. Yeah. Um, great. Because that's something I really wanted to talk about. Cause you bring it up throughout the book and there's these, all these, parallels going on, specifically with the uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association and Mr. Garvey. What did the UNI bring to the Black Americans, specifically to the women you talk about in the framework of, uh, what was it, he, he awakened their political consciousness?
2: Right. And that's a phrase that uh, two women in Chicago, uh, former Garveyates, who joined the unemployed councils with the communists, uh, used. And so There's a lot of scholarship and still a lot of contention of how linked the UNIA and the Communist Party were, uh, was. And I'm not gonna pretend to be an expert on that, but on the ground in very small ways, we do see those connections. So Chicago is going to be uh, very much one of those parts where that awakened political consciousness translated Uh, to black radicalism and specifically to to the Communist Party's actions. Uh, Because Chicago is is rife with this radical activity. Its history is is part of, is the center for for many cases of American radicalism. And that's not the case with St. Louis or Cleveland or Detroit. And so the presence and importance of Garvey uh, and his teachings is going to vary uh, from city to city and from individual to individual. But what we see, all that momentum that Garvey built up in the 1920s, regardless of the city, is the air goes out of it by the Great Depression. Uh, These ideas of of Black pride and Black nationalism, yes, have built and built and built to a point of of enormous potential, enormous influence on Black populations around the world. Uh, But when the Great Depression hits, how are you going to speak to some of those things that Garvey preached when you're not talking about those bread and butter issues of how to feed your family, how to get a job, how to force the government to help you? And that's when and where the Communist Party enters. They say, we can address that immediate need. We will, yes, talk about big theories of of Marx and things like that, but we will also organize soup kitchens. We will march on the street with you demanding unemployment insurance. We will organize you in strikes. And so Garvey really, his influence is immeasurable. Uh, We can um, number the amount of members, but we can never fully know the extent of his influence in terms of that political awakening. And I think the communists were fairly on point to draw from that uh, that tradition, that political awakening. Um, and it's it's uh, again, one of those perfect moments. This is coming together of the great migration, the, the stock market crash and the Garvey Movement kind of losing momentum, and in very wise, intelligent, and maybe manipulative ways, Communist Party uh, and other white radicals latched onto this uh, essentially void.
0: Yep, I mean exactly. i That's exactly what I was thinking. They, they filled the void. They filled this vacuum. Uh, the Communist Party did uh, by by introducing not only you know, very very smartly. Introducing unemployment councils, introducing in a way also the Trade Union Unity League, which yes. kind of was an independent union per se, yeah. um, but not really. I mean, that's the beauty about the Communist Party. They always had these the various influences, not really saying we're part of the Communist Party until it's time to sign the card. But right. right. Yeah, but as all these independence kind of led to these mass resistance, these mass strikes, these mass um, demonstrations to bring about, we can say one say a, a, a way of bringing down the system or changing the system. Right. Know, so,
2: and especially as as Garvey kind of preached this economic self independence through black communities, black businesses, uh, the communists were very much latching onto this idea that people were fed up with with capitalism, that it was showing again and again that it didn't work. So when the communists and, and the TUL said, no, we have to challenge his very fundamental assumptions of American capitalism, uh, black workers were ripe, right? Right ripe for, for, for that transition. Right. And so Garvey did a lot, and you can't, again, can't under-emphasize under, under emphasize it, but at the same time, you can't underemphasize the the teaching or the, the influence then of the Communist Party in this specific moment.
0: Um, you mentioned Chicago. We're going to jump into the Chicago world really quick, because it was different. Chicago is a different animal on itself compared to Detroit, Cleveland, and St. Louis. They had established radicalism dating back to the 1880s. They had an established American Federation of Labor with heavy influential unions that if you couldn't sneeze at certain points within the city without the union letting you do it sometimes. But it was a heavy radical moment. Um, the reason I bring that up is because you had Margaret Haley, leader of the, the teachers union then, and she was constantly at their, at their feet constantly going, you're not paying your taxes for the schools. And she was just constantly uh, the, the princess of petitions, as she was called, and one of the most radical people in Chicago. So she's one of my heroes. So I had to bring her in there. Awesome. Um, yes. Yes. Um, but so how did the black women fit into this already established network of um, I, I'd say it's like white Irish Chicago labor leaders, you know? Hate to paraphrase that, you
2: know, but No, I think it's it's not inaccurate, especially if we look at the radicals operating at the time. It's socialists, uh, it's communists who are majority white. Now, of course, we do have uh A. who is leading black socialist organizing the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Um, but at the time we have a huge division between socialism, uh socialists and Communist, and I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> uh, it's,
0: yeah, um, I know. I wouldn't either. Oops, nope.
2: <laughs> so, well, uh, moving on from that, uh, it is. It's this established white radical community for a few exceptional. Um, or notable exceptions, and so we do have uh, these black women making that transition to uh, these midwestern urban areas from the south, or if they're moving in from rural areas, uh, they're they're continuing that traditions that they always have. Their mothers, their workers, uh, they for the most part don't have the luxury of being stay-at-home uh, mo- moms. They are working. They are supplementing their income. Uh, they maybe have gone to a Garvey meeting. there in this moment. Uh, where there's desperation. Um, And it's not desperation out of fatigue. It's not desperation out of helplessness. It's desperation out of, okay, tell me where to stand and I will move the world. And that's very much what we see when we do have this kind of alliance between white communists, white radicals in Chicago and, and black women. Uh, it We begin to see the, the white communists continually target uh, black working class communities very intentionally. Uh, and so the unemployed councils are going to be this, this major site of connection between uh, the between races. And we begin to see those lines blurred of what the Communist Party is. Uh, yes, we have white leaders, uh, but we have... Black leaders in the unemployed councils, we have uh, black women leading strikes, participating in strikes who do not join the party. We have uh, community leaders who do not uh, identify as communists but are absolutely there for the communist cause. Uh, And so it's really this moment of, again, not signing the communist card. You're not a card carrying communist, Mm -hmm. but these women are willing to exist on uh, that same level, use those resources necessary to, to save lives, to save their own lives, to protect their family, to keep their jobs. And it became such a such a force, the uh, presence of the Communist Party and other radicals. There's a, the huge text written by sociologists, uh, Horace Cain and St. Clair Drake in the 1940s, where they document this radical agitation. And they talk about how common evictions were in the Black community. I mean, when Black workers lost their jobs, they couldn't pay their rents, they were evicted. We're talking thousands a year. And so the radicals, the unemployment councils, employed councils became such a force for protesting these evictions. They would go to these houses where people were being evicted. They would take the furniture and put it back in the house. They would pass a hat around to collect money to turn the lights back on. Um, it became such a presence for the unemployed councils and, and the radicals in Chicago, that there's stories that when a mother was facing eviction, when a black family was facing eviction, they would say, run quick and get the reds. Because um, mm-hmm. the communists were the only ones who were protesting these evictions. And so that transition from that transition into a uh, black radical, however you would define it. However, these women defined their roles uh, was was there for immediate need as as well as longevity. Because we see that black radical presence continue not only in Chicago but in, in many many midwestern areas.
0: Yeah, those those stories resonated in Detroit and, and Cleveland and St. Louis. Uh, the eviction parties of getting people back in. And it it harkened back to what happened during the great recession here in Detroit. Uh, We had friends uh, uh, in Detroit who were helping people putting the furniture back in um, the eviction. All right. This is a tough one, but because your book is so full of stories and wonderful analogies. And I met so many wonderful women reading your book and they're all wonderful on their own right. This is a tough one for you though. Um, if you're going to have a dinner party, what were the two women who would be your favorites to have that dinner party? Who would you have at your dinner party?
2: Well, first, I'm so excited that you enjoyed the stories, because often as a historian of radicalism, uh, you can easily get caught up in the theory. You get caught up Mm -hmm. in the the Marxism, these these lenses that you use. Uh, But for me, part of the Midwestern Black radicalism is to tell those stories and the individual stories as much as possible, because their experiences were so, so different. And for that, um, yeah, it was a really hard question, uh, but I think I would go with uh, Maud White, first of all. Um, she became Maud White Cats, uh, first because she was born very close to where I currently live in Pittsburgh, and I can see the similarities of, of Pittsburgh uh, as a potentially Midwestern city. I won't say that. I won't enter that debate. Uh, <laughs> but this urban area in the 1930s, racial tensions, working class tensions, and how that influenced her uh greatly in this fight for workers' rights. She would eventually go to Cleveland or New York, then Cleveland, where she would serve as this liaison between the communists and the the liberals. She she was a card-carrying communist. She was part of the party for sure, but she was also this this branch, um, part of her work in the Future Outlook League, which was with uh, politicians and the established middle class of Cleveland. And she kind of extended this this olive branch and say, hey, we can work together. Now, this is very much part of the popular front when the communists are looking to work with uh, liberal moderate organizations. But Maude White was on the forefront of that in Chicago, or sorry, in Cleveland. Uh, And so I would just love to sit down with her and be like, how did you reconcile, right? (laughs) How did you reconcile working with these people that, you know, five years ago, the communists would have did hate? How do you reach across the aisle? and to to address these immediate needs, because I think at, at her point she was it was practical as well as you know ideological, and I think that is such a tension for uh, many of these historical actors. So I'd like to like to get into that. Yeah. Uh, she later moved to uh, to New York, where she did leave the Communist Party, uh, but continued to fight for for teachers and schools, which is great. The other woman I would like to sit down with is Romania Ferguson. And she's because she is so mysterious. (laughs) She appears in Chicago in 1928. Uh, She's from Ohio. uh, We think she appears in Chicago as one of the most committed members of of the Communist Party. She receives funds to go study uh, at uh, Marxist school, where she's among maybe a dozen African-Americans and one of the only women. And she is so ardent uh, about her commitment to the Communist Party. She comes back and she's she's raising all sorts of hell in Chicago. Newspaper articles about how she's, you know, Storming meetings, how she's being protested at at uh, at organizations, just because she is backbone of the communist uh, understanding, and she is she is sold sold into it, and then she disappears, and that is not uncommon for mm-hmm. for the time period. Uh, I don't have her writings. I have a few articles. I have a few. Articles by her, a few articles about her. Um, one reference to her in the Communist Party archives. But as was very common, I mean, these women were not the center of Communist Party activity um, for, for the most part. And so trying to center their stories when you don't have those resources is incredibly difficult. And I want to know what happened to her, right? Did she stay on with the party during, uh, during the... World War II, what the Red Scare, how did she react to the news of the atrocities being committed uh, in Soviet Union? Where where did she stand ideologically? How did this once uh, incredibly committed poster child uh, of American communism, where did she go? And so I think her story is is there to be highlighted uh, if we can find those resources. So that's that's actually kind of one of my projects in the long-term is finding out more about her.
0: Excellent, because that's one of the people I want to like meet as well. Um,
2: she's fascinating.
0: She's fascinating. She's a, remarkable. And what really got me going was what all right, her husband got buried in the Haymarket Murder Cemetery, and she did not. And so this is what you attracted me to her. is like, holy, this is one of the most powerful women going on right now in the 1930s. For the Communist Party, and disappears just like purged almost. And she had she she was tenacious. She was so smart, you know, at what she was doing, being able to go and do these kind of things. So yeah, she was on my list too. So
2: yeah, <laughs> Ray Hansborough was a leading uh, Black Communist in Chicago and really the, the country. And he wrote this important document on the quote the Negro question. So yeah, he, so he's in that, that inner circle of radicals in Chicago. He's buried next to the Haymarket murders. That's a huge that's a huge deal. That's mm-hmm. like a Mecca for black radical or for radicalism. I've been there. It's great. And
0: yeah I dragged my kids there. They didn't get out of the car.
2: Oh uh, <laughs> they'll learn one day. Uh, <laughs> and so it's it's incredibly telling of black men's role in the radical tradition is that it's hidden, it's obscured, it's there's other stories that take precedence. And so my role is to, to really find out more about her and elevate her story as this, not the wife of, but as important.
0: important Uh, uh, Yeah. uh, Standing on her own, uh, on our own world. Um, Racial tension, as you mentioned, often breeds a racial consciousness. So how did race, class and gender shape into the alliances for the future of the movements that lay ahead? Um, So much happens later than the depression so many things were going on what were the things that led in
2: and that's why i focused on the great depression because there's so much scholarship, obviously, on the civil rights movement. Obviously, 1950s, and we're looking at Brown v. Board, and we're looking at uh, lunch counter sit-ins and so forth. 1940s, there's obviously still activism going on, but it's all in the shadow of of World War II. And so my question is, well, what's happening that we get to this point of the 1960s, 1970s, right? These huge moments uh, of social revolution don't come out of nowhere. And that was why I was looking at the 1930s, where these coalitions formed. And I'm not the first historian to say that, but in looking specifically at these Midwestern cities, I, I make the argument that it's a very very specific, particular form of black radicalism that gets its roots. And so for your question, I think it's easiest to, to give examples. Um, and for this, I'll go to Detroit because Detroit is, one industry city, right? In 1930s, it's the automobile industry. And so when uh, the Communist Party looks to to agitate to bring black workers into the movement, they focus on auto workers. And they begin with their own union, the auto workers union. Um, It doesn't take off. And so instead, they're really focusing on the works in the neighborhoods, uh, with the unemployed councils, Uh, they're focusing on addressing these bread and butter issues. uh, And we see that the inroads they make with the communities, and the inroads that Black women make with the communities, and organizing these soup kitchens, and organizing community, and organizing community relationships, and reaching out to, to Black workers, um, we see those those threads begin to form. And so, specifically, uh, Rose Billups was the wife of uh, a um, an auto worker. Um, and he was he was particularly active in the unemployed councils, and I think he was card-carrying communist. She was not, she was not uh an auto worker, she was not a communist, but we see how she reached two other black women who had husbands in the automobile industry, she brought them into the movement, she sold them on these unions to a point where by the time the CIO is uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations is formed, and the auto, uh, United Auto Workers Union uh, is established in these uh, the automobile industry in Detroit. We see that Black workers are more willing to 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 join, and it's because of these roles. Black women like Rose Billups uh, forged these threads they or these ties they they made uh, to the Black community that weren't there prior prior to 1930. But it's because uh, Rose Phillips. I think she would also be on my guest list if I could invite a third person to dinner, Uh, but forging those ties, establishing those foundations that made the CIO, the UAW um, possible, right? Uh, Unionizing in Ford Motor Company would not have existed without black women's roles using that lens of race, class, gender, you can see that this is, the CIO is so much more about, so much more than, than white men's unions, so much more than black men's unions. It's a community union. Uh, now, that's not to say it was perfect. Mm-hmm. Huge racial tensions, huge issues. But at the same time, um, it represented the, the potential. Let's just say.
0: And it was, it was lovely about Billups is she wasn't afraid to say, "Hold on, I have a story to tell you." Because of the oral history she did with her with her husband, all the all the questions were getting lead to him, and something like that she stood up and said, "Let me set this record straight here, Mister." You know,
2: and that is my best archival find. Uh, <laughs> I, is that the Ruther? And that, I'm not pandering to you here, but I had already been to. Uh, Wayne State before and I was like okay I got some good stuff okay then go okay okay." I'm like two years later or sometime later I'm like I think I'll try again we'll just see if I missed anything and I came across this interview um they had done several but this one particular yeah she stops the interviewee and be like and she says can I just take a moment to talk about how black women organized the Ford Motor Company and it was this huge moment of it was just like that's when the light shines down and you hear the, <laughs> the whole the angel singing, and you're like, this this is this is the story yeah. that makes it make sense. Because their stories were not elevated. It was all the interviews were focused on her husband and the, the role black men played. And it's 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 really sad because the interviewer lets her talk and then they're like, okay, now back to your husband. And it's it's frustrating, and so that's why I, I would try to center the stories of of Rose Billups uh, and other women like her who weren't necessarily in the factories in in Detroit, but who were nonetheless fundamental members uh, and contributors to this to this unionization cause.
0: Perfect segue for our favorite question on our podcast is basically what collections did you use at the Ruther, but you, you uncovered, discovered. I mean, I hate saying that. Yeah. You, you I mean, exposed again the stories that were neglected in other archives and brought them to life. So I would love to know also where you, where you, where you, where you opened that folder. Right. And there was the story. You know.
2: First, yeah. The word discover. I I play around with it, but I, yeah. I come to the conclusion: the archivists are the are the, he, the heroes here. But then also these stories aren't discoveries to the women and their are those that came after, right? Those families that have drawn on the traditions of their great, great, great amas are well aware of these stories and that, that strength. And so I try to use the word, I elevate, I you know point towards the importance. I say, hey, this needs to be uh, shared in academia. Um, but yeah, so just to give a little caveat in the term "discovered," um, and so the yeah, so uh, Walter Ruther Library absolutely essential. I, I drew from mainly two sources: blacks in the Ra- blacks in the labor movement, and then the Ho- Ford Hunger March archives. Right. Um, the latter was very helpful because in, in 1932 we had this huge protest, huge march uh, on the uh, River Rouge factory uh which is part of Ford Motor Company and police open fire and people are killed um five people five like people are murdered and so this is this huge moment of exposing Henry Ford exposing uh, the auto workers uh, and capitalists of Detroit for what they really are they're murderers they don't care about the workers uh the things that came after the pamphlets would say we asked for bread, they gave us bullets. And it's a huge moment of rallying around uh, this the the radical organizing and then the unionizing in, in general. And so the Ford Hunger March is incredibly important and always is pointed to in in uh in Detroit history, but black women are never kind of centered centered in it. And that's actually, I I will call out uh, the library for one thing I didn't find there. Um, And that was a photo. There's this, an interview um, in 2007 uh, where a black communist from the time says, uh, gives a description of the Ford Hunger March. And he gives this story about how Maddie Woodson who was card-carrying communist, black woman was present at this, this protest when, Shots were fired. She knelt down, tore a piece of her skirt uh, off and then stopped the bleeding of one of the white communists who had fallen. So it's this incredibly like Hollywood moment of black women tending to the, the wounds of her fallen comrade. And apparently there was a photo taken. And so I came to Detroit, came to Wayne State. and I'm like, I'm gonna find this photo and I'm going to just blow up the academic world. I couldn't, and often with with Black women is that those absence of absence of sources. Um, and so I had to find Maddie Woods in some other way. Uh, had to look at the, the Blacks and the labor movement, um, which was incredibly helpful. Had a lot of uh, Black men who were active in the Communist Party during that time who had mentioned Maddie, or I had to look at the Communist Party records who had mentioned her. And so it's it's telling that her story was quite literally erased, uh, and probably will never have that photograph. But at the same time, that's a part of uh, what the archives offer is that absence, and you have to read around it, which is mm-hmm. very very difficult. But it makes those moments when you do get that Rose Billups interview and the the angels sing and the lights come down that makes it so so worth it.
0: Mm-hmm. What, what other archives, like in uh, St. Louis or Chicago, did you use to get these similar stories out there?
2: It was, obviously, arch- archival work is one of my favorite parts of, of being a historian, uh, telling those stories that, you know, one line in a document somewhere. Uh, but it was very difficult because the records were all sorts of all over the place. Like in St. Louis, I depended heavily on the Urban League. Chicago, I did not. (laughs) In Detroit, I did not. In Cleveland, they didn't have the Urban League until it was a a Cleveland Welfare uh, Association for a while. And so each archive was a different kind of scavenger hunt. Uh, But huge props to the Black Metropolis Research Consortium in Chicago. Uh, It is an alliance of various archives and museums uh, that was incredibly helpful in Detroit, obviously, and then the University of Michigan, St. Louis, University of Missouri, uh, St. Louis, Missouri uh, History Museum, and then Chicago, I mean, sorry, New York. New York is the center of Communist Party records. And so the Taemin Museum and archives there was, is an essential resource for anyone doing this type of work. And it's been underutilized, especially when you're talking about communist presence in the Midwest. I was looking at documents um, that probably haven't been looked at since they were first, you know, put on microfilm, um, but to have those moments of insight where you see the name Ferguson mentioned in relation to Chicago. And the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, Ferguson, that's probably a white guy. And then I realized, no, that's Romania Ferguson that they're talking about in the Communist Party, Central Party archives. And so it just brings home how important looking between those lines, reading between those lines is for telling these women's stories.
0: Dr. Ford, thank you so much for sharing the stories, so much for talking about your book. Um, Honestly, I really did appreciate your book. The stories are wonderful and I've been telling my kids and everybody (laughs) will listen about these stories and say, hey, did you know this happened? So thank you so Uh, much. And I can't wait to see more from you.
2: Well, thank just, you. I'm so happy to hear that. It's the stories that I'm trying to elevate that need to be perpetuated for, for everyone, right? Not just historians, academics, but... But everyone. everyone. Yeah. Yep.
0: So thanks so much.
2: Well, thank you. And thank you for your work with Walter Ruther Library. It was such a pleasure to spend my days there. Um, and I look forward to coming back. <laughs>
1: Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Goladner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan.
0: Goodbye, Dan. I'll keep talking. I'll just keep babbling on and on and on about how academics they Lou, how are you? One, two, three, four, ABC, a brick and a Bible. Bump, bada, bump, 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 bump. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Hi. Are you not close enough? Am I close enough now? Oh, yeah. There
1: you go. There you go.
0: Okay. All right. We'll get right into the microphone here and uh, make sure we don't pop or say too much.
1: That was too much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's good, though? Yep. Okay, that's fine. We'll just try to do it this way. I'll keep my voice down like this, the DJ.
1: <laughs> a DJ who's been smoking several
0: packs a day. You know before. I'm on KRP. WKRP in, in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. I was talking to some people the other day, and they reminded me of their episode about the Who concert.
1: It sounded like you forgot the name of our podcast for a second is at it? the very beginning. No, just no, no. I mean, what's the name of our sp- podcast?
0: <laughs> the Ruther Library Tales. Yeah. Okay. Continue. Do you want me to start over? We probably should. Just okay. In case. All right. Is it Tales from the Ruther? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am your host, Dan Glodner.
1: <laughs> what
0: are you doing? <laughs>
1: Said, Hello and welcome to this version of the Tales from the Ruther Library. Yeah.
0: Who wanted to mess around? <laughs> and you kept giggling.
1: <laughs> well, because it sounds weird. <laughs> I know it does.
0: <laughs> Second take is always going to be weird.
1: <laughs> uh, just wait till we get to the third take. <laughs>